Gracious Father in heaven, we have been so blessed to come together night after night. At times it has been difficult because of just, you know, the routine and things that are going on and things like that. But uh, every time that we carve out time for your word and to really perk up our ears toward heaven, we know it's an investment of eternal magnitude. And so tonight is no different, Lord. We just give you permission to lead us in your word. That the things that we read, even if they're familiar, or whether they're familiar or unfamiliar, that the things that we would read would really be as if we are listening to you speaking directly to our hearts. And so please, grant us the gift of your Holy Spirit. There are a lot of things that we've talked about over the last two weeks. Things that uh, may have been unfamiliar territory, things that may have been even unsettling in some ways, but Lord, I hope that in the end, our eyes would have been turned to Jesus. And so we ask that tonight would be just like that, that you would truly turn our eyes to Jesus. There's a promise in John chapter 12, verse 32, it says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. Jesus, we ask that you would be lifted up tonight. Please draw us to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, let everyone say Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. We're going to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Now, um, I, I did not look up the page numbers in our seminar Bible, so I think it's towards the end. Uh, Revelation, last book. Last, 1677. By the way, how many of us, so we've been kind of promising, hey, if you've attended seven nights of this seminar, or if you've watched seven videos of the seminar, I don't know, uh, you can walk away with the seminar Bible. So hopefully we won't have to store a lot of these Bibles. Hopefully you'll be actually be able to walk away with these Bibles. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, when you're there, say, I found it. All right. Revelation chapter 14. And this is where we're going to kind of settle down uh, our anchor for tonight. <clears throat> In Revelation chapter 14, we see a vision of three angels flying through the midst of heaven. They're not blue, and they're not supersonic loud. <laughs> oh, man. Did anybody catch sight of that today? I think the air show started today, and it'll continue tomorrow and stuff. But, man, that's, that's pretty fun. Okay, so we're talking about these three angels' messages, and starting in verse 6, the Bible says this, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell where? Who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now that phrase, to dwell on the earth, is actually a phrase that's used elsewhere throughout Revelation. And it's actually referring to those, not just earth inhabitants in general, but those whose attachment is to earth. Does that make sense? Those whose hearts are really set on earthly things rather than heavenly things. In fact, when you go to chapter 13, verse 8, notice what it says about those who, quote-unquote, dwell on the earth. Chapter 13, verse 8, talking about the sea beast, the beast that rises from the sea that's actually trying to counterfeit Jesus Christ. This is an antichrist uh, symbol. In verse 8, it says, All who dwell on the where? All who dwell on the earth will worship him. In other words, those whose heart's attachment is, is directly loyal first and, and foremost to the things of this earth, they are worshiping the beast, the beast from the sea, the antichrist power. 
And so what you find in Revelation chapter 14, this angel that's flying in the midst of heaven, it's preaching the everlasting gospel to those who dwell where again? Okay, to, to those who dwell on the earth, that is those who are worshiping the beast. Did you hear me, yes or no? Yeah? Okay, so this first angel's message has a very specific target audience. It's those whose hearts think they're worshiping God, but in the end, they're actually worshiping a substitute for God. And according to verse 6, what is it that those who dwell on the earth need to hear from this first angel? What is it that the first angel is bearing to those who dwell on the earth? It is the everlasting, the everlasting what? Gospel. Okay, okay. All right, just let me know that you're tracking with me. Here we go. So here in, this, uh, in, in your handout, let's go ahead and write this in. In these last days, God is sending out the everlasting gospel. Go ahead and write that in. In these last days, God is sending out the everlasting gospel to those who dwell on the earth. To those who dwell on the earth. Let's keep reading here. We'll keep reading. It says, out of a heart of infinite love, God sends out a final message to rescue those who worship the beast. Go ahead and put that one in. Out of a heart of infinite love, God sends out a final message to rescue those who worship the beast. Now, I don't know if you're kind of catching the, the visual. We haven't read, you know, chapter 12, 13, and 14 in succession here tonight. But maybe you can do that just to kind of catch the momentum of what's going on here. So in chapter 12, we see this battle between uh, the beauty and the beast, right? The woman... <laughs> And the dragon that keeps chasing after the woman. Right? And over and over again, the devil is fruitless. He, he fails. He's defeated. At the end of chapter 12, he is so enraged that he makes war not with the woman, but with the rest of the woman's offspring. Remember that in chapter 12, verse 17? And as he's standing on the seashore in chapter 13, the movie starts changing scenes a little bit as the dragon is so enraged. Okay, how can I make war against the remnant? Chapter 13 depicts how he does that. The two instruments through which the dragon makes war against God's remnant. And those two instruments, those two henchmen, those two allies in his end time attack, it's the beast from the sea, which is a counterfeit of Jesus Christ, and the beast from the earth, which we haven't actually read at all about. All right, and, and that's in chapter 13. It starts, I think, in verse 11. All right, there's a beast that comes from the sea in verse 1, and then a beast that comes from the earth. These are two powers that the Antichrist, I'm sorry, that Satan will use at the end of time to attack God's remnant. Okay? As John is watching this movie unfold in his, you know, this panoramic view, I mean, you can, you can kind of guess that John's heartbeat is starting to race, and then all of a sudden, right? These, these angels fly in the midst of heaven. Okay, so here, those who dwell on the earth. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed a part. I missed a part in the drama. Okay, so you've got those who dwell on the earth. They're worshiping the beast. And uh, the, the beast from the earth is actually kind of promoting this stuff going on. But chapter 14 starts. And what's the subheading in, in your Bible for chapter 14? The lamb and the 144,000. Okay, okay, okay. So as John's heart is starting to race, he's like, oh, man, this is, this is sad. This is disturbing. But then his, the camera kind of goes like this, and then he sees the lamb. Ah, 
right? He sees the lamb, and that lamb is standing with 144,000, those who are faithful, who follow the lamb wherever he leads. So there are those who dwell on the earth that are worshiping the, the false Christ, the, the antichrist, a false religious system. And then there are those who stand with the lamb and follow him wherever he leads. And then bridging the gap, there you go, bridging the gap is this angelic message from heaven. And it's the everlasting gospel. God isn't just standing on Mount Zion like, ah, too bad for them. They're just not going to get it. No. He's sending. He's sending a heavenly message to seek and save the lost. Right? Luke chapter 19, verse 10. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's Jesus' heart there, okay? So this is what we're seeing as this uh, first angel is flying in the midst of heaven. See it as a last-ditch effort, God's last-ditch effort. So let's, let's keep reading here. Out of a heart of infinite love, God sends a, out a final message to rescue those who worship the beast. As we have seen, this beast historically represents the Roman church state. That is, the Christian church, when it also became a state, it became a beast, when the, when the Christian church joined hands and was given the power of the state, it became apostate, okay? And that opened up doors for all sorts of things, falsehood in terms of belief as well as practice, but even just the going about of the gospel message, it was not in gospel character. Trying to force people to abide according to God's word was not, was not God's way at all. So let's keep reading. As we have seen, this beast historically represents the Roman church state. But notice this part. On the broader level of principles. On the broader level of what? Principles. This beast represents self-driven religion that seeks to accomplish spiritual goals through secular power. Go ahead and write that one in. Seeking to accomplish spiritual goals through secular power. Or you might say human power. I think I, I use the word secular just because it had that alliteration with spiritual goals through secular power. Those who worship this beast then are those who seek to attain spiritual goals through human power. That is salvation by faith in man, not in God. I want to make sure that everybody understands that. Okay? What we've seen in Revelation chapter 17 is it was a woman sitting on top of a beast. That was a visual representation of God's people actually relying upon political power or civil power. Okay, we can see that historically. We see that in systems. But the reality is we try that in our own lives. We try that in our own lives. We try to seek heavenly things, but we often try to do it through human thrust, human effort. But I tell you what, that's beastly. Did you hear me? <laughs> It's beastly. And in fact, the Bible calls it Babylon. All right? What God is doing is he's saying, hey, anyone who's caught in that round of frustration, whether they're, part, they're worshiping the beast in system or in spiritual practice, God is sending these three angels' message to those of us who are in either of those categories. All right? Okay, so let's keep reading here. Those who worship the beast, then, are those who seek to attain spiritual goals through human power. That is, salvation by faith in man, not in God. This inclination to trust in self rather than trust in God is the very essence. It's the very essence of humanity's sin problem itself. 
And I put a reference there for, for Romans chapter 14, verse 23. And actually, you know what? Can you just keep a finger here in Revelation? Let's go there very quickly. I want you to see this for yourself. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Like if you were to come up with a definition for sin, I'm not quite sure. Maybe, maybe you think of verses like, uh, what is it? First uh, John chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. But notice this one. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Uh, what is it in the seminar Bible? Who's got it in the seminar Bible? Romans 14? 1486. Thank you. Okay. 1486. When you're there, say, I found it. Okay. Paul is actually talking about a very specific situation about, you know, should I eat this? Should I not eat this? Whether you make that decision based on God's conviction or whether you're trying to please or not please man. Okay. So in verse 23, it says it like this, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from what? From faith. In other words, if you're making a decision not based on trust in God, who are you really trusting? You're trusting man or you're trusting self. And this is his conclusion. For whatever is not from faith is what? Is sin. I don't know if that lands heavy with you, but for me, when I started to realize that it was not just whether or not I did good things or bad things, but it was the heart from which I was doing whatever things. Even the best of things that I was doing on the outside, the question was, was I doing that from faith in God or faith in something else? Even the best of our actions, when it's not founded upon a trust in God, friends, that is trusting in self. Essentially putting self in the place of God, the very thing that the Antichrist power stands for. That's not just the Antichrist in history. That's not just the Antichrist out there. That's the Antichrist in here that we all need to be redeemed from. No wonder that the message that those who dwell on the earth need to hear is the ever lasting gospel. The good news that it's not any of us that saves. It's Jesus who saves. Amen. I don't know if you're aware of this, but that the name Jesus means the Lord saves, right? Only Jesus can be Jesus. Can we just settle that from the very get-go here? Yeah. Only Jesus can be Jesus. Only the Savior can really save you and me. We may try, we may try, but I tell you what, instead of trying, start trusting. <laughs> and when I discovered that, that was the gospel in action for me. That totally changed my life. All right, I, I'm totally getting off course here, but we need to get to the three angels' messages. Okay, here we are, the rest of that paragraph. In this light, we will be able to discern the deep, spiritual significance of God's message through the three angels of Revelation chapter 14. So let's go there. Go back to Revelation chapter 14. And here's what we're going to do. Before we get into the meaning of these messages, we want to kind of place them in the stream of history. All right, when these messages, okay, because you know, uh, John is actually seeing this in some sort of chronological sequence. We know at some time, uh, you know, as as the beast from the sea arises and the beast from the earth tries to help things out and things like that. And then in chapter 14, all these things. So here we are, Revelation chapter 14, when you're there, say amen. Okay, now here's, let's go ahead and fill this in here. If the proclamation of the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people 
is the sequel, go ahead and write this one in, is the sequel of the prophetic commission of Revelation chapter 10, 11. Then these heavenly messages have been sounding since the great disappointment in 1844. These messages have been sounding since the great disappointment of 1844. Now, this was all stuff that we presented earlier this morning. So if you were not here for that presentation, make sure to check out the recording. But basically, what we noticed is that there is a connection. Remember, in Revelation 14, verse 6, it says he has the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is actually picking up from chapter 10, where in chapter 10, verse 11, there's a representation of God's people who have been receiving God's prophecies, but they did so at, in a way that was sweet at first. It turned into a great disappointment. Again, if you didn't hear that message, go, go to our video archive and you'll catch it there. But after that great disappointment where people thought that they understood the prophecies of Daniel, when people thought that the prophecies of Daniel were actually pointing to the second coming of Jesus, in October 22, 1844, they thought Jesus truly was coming. Yes, the time prophecy of Daniel 8.14 had been fulfilled, 2300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. But it wasn't in reference to the earth as a sanctuary. It was in reference to a heavenly temple where Jesus as high priest would move into a cleansing phase of salvation history. After that great disappointment, Revelation 10 verse 11, the angel says to John, he says, you must prophesy again about who? Many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Peoples, nations, tongues. That's exactly, or it's, it's very linked to the language of Revelation 14 verse 6, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So we see here a prequel followed up by a sequel, okay? And this Revelation 14, verse 6, if we connect the dots then, then Revelation 14, 6's everlasting gospel sounds subsequent to 1844. Does that, does that make sense to everybody? Yes or no? Yeah? Okay, so just placing this in the stream of history, we see that, that this is subsequent to 1844. That's why in verse 7, the first part of this message, it says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment, what are the next two words? Has come. You know, elsewhere in the New Testament, when Paul is talking about the judgment, he says, it's the judgment to come. From the perspective of the New Testament authors, judgment was always future. But when this message is sounded, judgment was present tense. This message is being sounded ever since 1844, the fulfillment of the 2300-day prophecy. Why? Because that cleansing of the sanctuary was the judgment phase of God's story of redemption. All right. So, if we keep reading, though, when you get to the tail end of the three angels' messages, notice this. Right afterwards, in verse 14, the next thing John sees after he sees these three angels and hears their messages, the very next thing, verse 14... Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like who? The Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. John then sees, after hearing these three angels' messages, he sees Jesus dressed like a farmer. Okay? What's going on here? It's the Son of Man, and he has a sickle in his hand. Why? Because it's time to harvest. It's time to reap the harvest. 
And we've studied this before in one of the parables that Jesus tells. He tells the parable of the wheat and the tares. And, and you know, as the, the tares are growing up, angels, you know, they're asking God, hey, should we go ahead and start tearing things out right now? And what is God's response to that? No, wait until the harvest at the end of the age. Okay? So here, what we're seeing in verse 14 is the picture of Jesus at the second coming. And he's ready to harvest. Now, if those, those of you who grow things, those of you who have gardens, those of you who have orchards or, or crops or whatever, hey, you don't go picking until it's ready to pick. Right? Unless you like green tomatoes. No, I don't. <laughs> okay, you don't go picking until the fruit is ripe, until the crop is ready, until it's fully mature. So what we see here is at the beginning of verse 6, when these angels start, it's, it's when judgment hour has go, come. 1844. When these messages are done, the result will be that the harvest is ripe. Hey, hey, hey! <laughs> so, so, okay, okay. I don't, I don't know if you're catching this. When this is done, that means Jesus is coming! <laughs> okay. Yeah. So check this out. Check this out. A couple of things. One, historically speaking, then, we know that the angels' messages, whatever they are, and we're going to get to them, whatever they are, they start sounding in 1844, and they will keep sounding until Jesus comes. Okay? The other thing we know is that somehow, whatever these messages are, they are like divine fertilizer that ripens people's hearts for harvest. It's a divine catalyst. Whatever these messages are, it is causing things to ripen. Actually, ripen either for God or against God. Making the line of demarcation very, very solid. So there in your handout, let's write this in. Since these three angels' messages result in the ripening of earth's harvest, they result in the ripening of earth's harvest, they must be proclaimed until the second coming of Jesus. They must be proclaimed until the second coming of Jesus. So, this kind of lays some heavy significance then on these three angels' messages. If these messages were for some reason not to sound for people to hear, friends, there would be no harvest. All the more reason to know what these messages are and to share what these messages are. Amen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get into it. Okay, so the question is, what do they say? Let's read them one by one. The messages in summary. Let's keep going here. Verse 7, saying with a loud voice. Here's angel number one. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to kind of read them one by one. And we'll just try to summarize them in one-liners I'm, which is kind of odd because they're already one-liners to begin with, but we'll do it even more. Okay, so the first one, judgment has come, so fear God. This is uh, my version of a simple summary of the first angel. Judgment has come, so fear God. Okay. The second angel comes along in verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city... Because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Okay, we're, again, we're just going to kind of summarize them and then we'll get into it. So if I were to summarize this one, 
I would say Babylon has gone kaput. <laughs> kaput. All right. That's a word that you'll find only in the most scholarly of theological dictionaries right there. <laughs> kaput. That's K-A. Anyways. <laughs> Babylon, whatever Babylon is, it's broken. All right. Babylon has gone kaput. Now, the third angel, starting in verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment, ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, if you ask me, that's probably one of the most sober passages in all of Scripture. This is a warning that you just kind of hear the heartache of God. And so if I were to summarize that one, Actually, I didn't even read verse 12. Let's read verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Kind of a, a bright beacon of hope there. All right. So if I were to summarize that, that third angel's message, beware of the beast and don't get its mark. Right. Beware of the beast and don't get its mark. Again, if you're curious about what is the mark of the beast and how do I ensure that me and my household, we, we avoid that. Um, come to Wednesday nights, you know, more answers in prophecy. We'll get to that one. But beware of the beast and don't get its mark. So those are the messages in summary. What we want to do now is actually examine them in depth. Because if these are the messages that somehow ripen people, or ripens people's hearts for eternity, if these are the messages that are the everlasting gospel, if these are the messages that those who dwell on the earth, whether, you know, they're worshiping Babylon in, in, a, in system or in, in just in personal practice, then, then we need to understand what they mean, right? How is it that these are like divine fertilizer? Okay, so here we go. We're going to take a look at the, the first angel's message and dive right in. Verse 7, it says, Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. When you're looking at that message... Let me ask you, how many imperatives do you read there? How many commands or appeals do you read there? How many do you see? I see three. I see three. Anybody else see three? Okay. All right. And those three are, what's the first one? Fear God. Okay. What's the second one? Give glory. Okay. And then the third one? Worship Him. All right. Three different appeals, but I would say they have the same general emphasis. Look to God. Right? Remember who's supposed to hear these messages? It's those who dwell on the earth. Those who are worshiping not God. They think they are, but they're in fact worshiping the Antichrist power. They're worshiping self instead of the Savior. And so this first angel says, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, you guys dwell, who are dwelling on the earth, look that way. Fear God, give Him glory, worship Him. Right? Three different appeals, same general emphasis. Go ahead and write that one in. Look to God. Look to God, not man or man-centered authority. Now, 
What's really interesting about these appeals themselves, they're, they're very deep and significant. I don't know, maybe you're kind of curious, why, why do we have this picture for the first angel's message? What's really interesting is that when you look at the, just even the, do a word study of fear or fearing the Lord or fearing God, uh, this is not the kind of fear of like, you know, shaking in your boots, this guy's going to hurt me, that kind of thing. It's not, it's not that kind of fear. The Bible actually has two different fears uh, in Scripture. You actually see it most clearly in, in the verse Exodus 20, verse 20, okay? And you see, actually, <laughs> uh, the Bible says, hey, I, I did this so that they wouldn't fear me. Um, anyway, so you, you go there and you realize that, okay, God is talking about fearing to displease him, not fearing him as a character. Here's the thing. When you look through the Bible and you see the idea of fear God, the very first mention of that phrase is in the book of Genesis. You can write this one down in your mind. Actually, let's go there. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. This is bonus material. I know you didn't sign up for this one, but it's free. Don't worry. Okay, Genesis chapter 22. So keep your finger in Revelation 14. This is really interesting. There's a, um, a hermeneutical principle, okay? A principle of Bible interpretation. That if you're ever trying to kind of get the general sense of a particular Bible concept, you can often go to the first place or first occurrence, first mention of that word or phrase. Here in Genesis 22 is actually the first time you see the phrase, fear God. All right. Now in Genesis 22, you can kind of start scanning that story. Maybe this is a story you're familiar with. It's a time in which God tested Abraham. And God gave Abraham some instructions. Hey, Abraham, I know this son that I, that's a miracle baby, uh, this son that I promised to you, I actually want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham doesn't know what to do about that. I don't know. I'm sure he goes through an internal battle, but you, you read the story and Abraham immediately obeys, immediately responds, and he goes on a journey with his son, his promised son, his only son, Isaac. And as they're going along, you read, you read the story and you find that oh, Isaac, actually it dawns on him, wait a minute, we're going up to offer a sacrifice to God, but we've got wood, we've got fire, and he talks to his dad, and uh, what? where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's response of faith, he says, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. They keep walking. They get on the altar. Isaac begins to recognize. Now, Isaac is probably not just a little guy like this. He's probably, you know, enough to, to wrestle down a 110-year-old man, right? But he's willing. They're both in on this. And in verse 12, I'm sorry, let me, let me back up in verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. Verse 12, and he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you do what? Oh. For now I know that you fear God. And then notice this last qualifier. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. To fear God in a biblical sense is to be in such an attitude towards him that you hold nothing back from God. That whatever he calls for, you are all in. You are surrendered. That's what it means to fear God. What's interesting is that this very story is the first occurrence of the word worship in all of Scripture. 
All right, go, go with me just to verse 5. In verse 5, this is uh, earlier in the story when Abraham and Isaac are still kind of walking on their way with some of their hired help. And in verse 5, it says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and do what? Worship. And we will come back to you. Again, a response of faith. Somehow, Abraham's thought in his heart and mind, actually, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 19, Abraham had rationalized in his mind. Well, somehow, you know, God promised that, that, that many nations would come through Isaac, so he's got to be able to resurrect Isaac or something. <laughs> That's why he's saying, and we will come back to you. Here's the thing. When Abraham says to his servants, hey, we're going to go up the mountain and worship. What does he already know he's going to do? He, he knows he's going to sacrifice. He's not thinking of a guitar and singing a few songs. No. He's thinking, I'm going to give everything to God on the altar. And he calls that worship. Worship. And so here's the appeal from the first angel. Hey, fear God. Worship him. Live in such a way that nothing else would ever get between you and your loyalty to the one who calls you. Lay it out on the altar. So Abraham is like the poster boy for the first angel's message, okay? Actually, so we missed one of the imperatives, right? Give glory. Give glory to him. Go with me to quick to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Uh, this is a, an, a time in which Paul is describing what faith is truly like. Romans chapter 4, it's the, what is that, the fifth book, sixth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John, then you've got Acts and Romans. Romans chapter 4, if you have a page number in your seminar, 1472, Dwayne, you're the man, here we go. Romans chapter 4, and I want to read starting in verse 19. And yeah, I didn't put these in your handout, but go ahead and write these references down. These are, these are important to hang on to. So that was Genesis 22. We looked at verse 12 and 5. And then here in Romans chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. Here's what Paul says when he's talking about what it is to, to, to live faith. His primary illustration is the life of Abraham. Verse 19, And not being weak in faith, he, that is Abraham, Abraham did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, he did not waver at the what? At the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, doing what? Giving glory to God. And verse 21, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. I want to tell you something. Part of what it means to give God glory is to be absolutely certain that whatever God has promised, he is able to fulfill it. No matter how bleak or confusing the circumstance might be, Abraham shows us that to give God glory is to have faith, to cling to his promises, and that he is able to fulfill it no matter what. So here, again, what the first angel is telling those who dwell on the earth, who are relying upon self instead of the Savior, look that way. He's the one that you can surrender to and give all to. You can trust his promises. He will fulfill them. That's the appeal of the first angel's message. Look to Jesus. He's already kept his promises and he'll keep his promises till the end. Mm. 
Okay, so here we are, three different appeals with the same general emphasis, look to God, not to man or man-centered authority. And the two motivating factors behind these appeals is the judgment hour, right? Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. And when we're talking about the judgment hour, you can fill this one in. Judgment hour gives us a sense of urgency, right? Because it gives us some chronological time sense. Oh, okay, the prophecy of uh, Daniel chapter 8, verse 14 has actually been fulfilled. This is the final hour or the final phase of God's redemptive activity. So judgment hour gives us a sense of urgency, but also accountability. Go ahead and write that one in. Sense of urgency and accountability. And it also, if you're back in, the, in, the Re in Revelation chapter 14, the first angel says, Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and springs of water. So the other motivating factor behind these appeals is God's creatorship. Sense of God's worthiness. Go ahead and write that one in. Sense of God's worthiness in contrast to humanities. So here's the first angel saying, okay guys, you're persisting. Here you are uh, worshiping self or putting trust in man or man-centered authority. What you need to hear is the gospel. Right? What you need to hear is the appeal to look that way because only he is faithful to his promises. You can surrender fully to him. All right, the second angel. Let's keep going. The second angel. Note the following aspects of the second angel's message. Babylon's essence, here in your handout. Babylon's essence. Remember, we looked at Babylon, especially from the perspective of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, as well as, as uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire in Daniel chapter 4. But I want us just to kind of reflect back on the Tower of Babel. If you remember... Their whole goal was to make a name for themselves, right? They, they gathered together, just generations after the flood, they gathered together and said, hey, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower that reaches to heaven. Yeah, they had a heavenly goal. They wanted to get to heaven, but whose power were they relying upon to get there? Their own, right? So go ahead and write this one in. Babylon's essence, making a name for self and by self. Ignoring God's promise, right? The promise in, in uh, that time was that, hey, I will never flood the earth again. But they were ignoring God's promise and trusting one's own power. Trusting one's own power. That is the essence of Babylon. That will always lead to confusion. <laughs> you know, try, trying, to, trying to get to accomplish God's things. But instead of relying upon God's power, we rely upon self. Boy, that's always going to result in confusion. And that's what it did in the Tower of Babel, right? The other thing we recognize in this second angel, go, if, if you don't have Revelation 14 open, go back there with me. Revelation 14, verse 8. Just want to kind of sink our teeth into the second angel's message. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city... Because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So picking apart this, we've, we've seen, okay, Babylon. Whatever this is, this system is called Babylon because it's relying upon human power instead of God's. It's doing things for self and by self instead of for the glory of God. The fact that it makes all nations drink, it points to the, you can write this one down, points to the universality Okay, universality of Babylon's influence. If you don't like that word, far reach. Okay, far reach. 
made all nations drink. In other words, there is no place on earth where the influence of this mentality is not felt. Selfishness and trust in self does not have to be taught, right? I mean, when you're raising kids and stuff, you don't have to teach them how not to grab. I mean, sorry, how to grab. <laughs> that, that's something that they, they, they do on their own. Mine, mine, you know? Selfishness does not have to be taught. It's, it's selflessness. Reliance upon God, not reliance upon self. Made all nations point, or made all nations, it points to the universality of Babylon's influence. Now, this other phrase about the passion of her fornication, where is that? In verse 8, she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. I think some versions say passion of her fornication. Now, let me just put it like this. Um, again, this is like, this is a spiritual metaphor. We've already talked about harlotries being uh, an evidence of spiritual unfaithfulness to the covenant law of God. In this sense, fornication is essentially putting two things together that don't belong together. Can we, can we be real about that? Yeah? That's what fornication is. Putting two things together that do not belong together. So let's, let's write this one down. Putting two things together that don't belong, resulting in unfaithfulness. Resulting in unfaithfulness. And in the case of Babylon, what could that be? Well, it's putting church and state together. Those things don't belong. Those things don't belong. It'll only result in unfaithfulness. Can civil governments, you know, uh, you know, can they make laws that are in line with religious principle? Like, hey, thou shalt not murder. Hey, that's in the Ten Commandments. That's a good law we should make here on earth. Yeah, sure. When it comes to the last half of the Ten Commandments that deal with our relationship with one another, like the family unit, honor your father and mother. Uh, you shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not uh, commit adultery, right? All of these things that are in relation to our human relationships, sure, civil governments, they ought to align with that. They ought to make laws in regards to those things. However, when it comes to this relationship, when civil government starts to legislate that way, that's where the abuse comes. Do you follow me? Yes or no? Why? Because God is love. And love comes with the opportunity to say no, right? We've talked about this. Love, it, it, it's part and parcel with freedom. If love cannot say no, that is not love. That is not love. And so when it comes to, you shall have no other gods before me, you know, remember the Sabbath day, don't make any graven images, you shall not take my name in vain. Those are things between me and God. It's a matter of conscience. And when civil government starts messing with that, that's ugly. That's where you get the dark ages and persecution and all these kinds of things. Okay? So when we're talking about the passion of fornication that's putting two things together that don't belong, case in point, church and state, maybe on a, on a, a more practical spiritual level, God's word and man's traditions. Putting those two together doesn't belong. Why? Because you can't serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. 
All right. So the passion of her fornication, you know, we, we've kind of talked about these things uh, in terms of Babylon's influence and the, the intoxicating lies that are really uh, putting man's word above God's word or man's tradition, uh, philosophy, things like that above God's word. We've pointed some things out already. Babylon's influence through the change of the Sabbath. Babylon's influence through uh, the, the lie about the immortality of the soul when in reality the Bible teaches that the soul sleeps when it dies. And maybe you've wondered, man, is there really value in, in pointing out all of these things that are maybe different than maybe what, what many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world uh, have, have taught or, or align with? You know, is there really value in, in pointing out the Bible Sabbath or death as a sleep? And here's, the, here's what I would respond to that. That those doctrines need to be pointed out as being sourced in man's philosophy not so that I can say, hey, I'm right and you're wrong, okay? But because it's Babylon. And as long as we don't know that we're being deceived, we'll remain deceived. Here's the thing. The end time script gives us this validation that God himself wants people to know where they've been drinking of the wine of Babylon's influence, okay? And so, you know, I've, I've often wondered, well, maybe it's just better for people to kind of be ignorant about these things and, hey, let's just agree on what we can agree on. Yes, I'm all about building bridges and establishing common ground, but friends, in the times in which we live, apparently leading up to the harvest, there's a need to recognize Babylon's influence. Why? Because in Revelation chapter 18, God's appeal is to come out. Do we, are, are we still friends tonight? I mean, does that make sense tonight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, here we go. Let's keep going. Um, the message. What is the bottom line? The meaning of this message. The message is then that this influential system, that mode of operation, you know, putting two things together that don't belong together, relying upon man's authority rather than God's word, that influential system, that mode of operation is really fallen. Go ahead and write that one in. Is really fallen. Or if you still like the word kaput, go ahead and do that too. <laughs> it's proven to be a bust. Here's the point. When we see what's fallen, then we can start looking for the one who is faithful. That's why this message is so necessary. When we see what's fallen, then we realize, okay, I need to run to the one who's faithful. And that's why God gives this message. This is part of the everlasting gospel. Okay, we've talked through first angel, second angel, now the third angel. Third angel again, it says, then a third angel, this is verse 9 of Revelation 14, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And praise the Lord for the truth that we have uh, studied about hellfire. Hellfire isn't something that's currently ongoing. Hellfire is something that is actually reserved for the end of the thousand years. We've, we studied this, uh, I think this was this past Sunday. Um, and, and hellfire, actually, when it sets, the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20 will only burn as long as it needs to burn. Praise the Lord. 
And when we see this then, then we understand, man, even though it's a definite time period, we know it's a, it's a painful time period. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. I want us to note the following aspects here in your handout of the third angel's message. Here's the warning. Let's, let's be very, very clear. The third angel's message is the strongest warning in all of Scripture. The warning is this. There is wrath to come. Go ahead and write that one in. There is wrath to come and no rest today. And no rest today. Why do we say that? Why do we say that? Obviously, you know, uh, in verse 10, he himself shall also drink. It's kind of pointing forward. Okay, this is, this is the trajectory that things are leading if you worship the beast in his image, if you receive the mark of his name. This will be the future consequence. It's wrath to come. But the warning is also about today. There is no rest today. Catch that phrase. Where was that? In verse 11, talking about the, the, those who worship the beast. They have no rest day or night. That's a present tense verb. They have no rest day or night. And it describes their present uh, practice. Who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Sure. When it comes to the lake of fire, that will not be a restful time. I'm not glossing over that. Whether or not that lasts a day or more, day or night, there's no rest in that. But currently, those who persist in worshiping the beast... They currently do not have rest. That's the real warning there. God isn't just scaring us about, or at least kind of painting this stark picture about what's to come. He's saying, hey, wait, your present condition, that's not rest at all. You think you're worshiping, but there's no rest in that worship. Why? Because you're worshiping the beast and his image. Notice this. The very essence of worshiping the beast is worshiping and trusting self. Worshipping, trusting self. That is putting man or man's doctrine or man's authority in the place of God himself. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus gives us this beautiful invitation. It's one that, that he extends to each and every one of us. Any given season. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And then he says, and I will give you rest. I want to tell you something. True rest is found only in Jesus. True rest is found only in Jesus. And it's only in coming to Jesus. Why is it that those who worship the beast in his image do not have rest day or night? It's because they're not coming to Jesus. They're placing trust in self rather than in Jesus. If their eyes, you know, the eyes of their heart, they're looking to self. They're looking to other people. They're looking to man's authority to dictate their conscience. They're not looking to Jesus. And because of that, there's no rest. There's no rest. So let's write this one down. If rest is found when we come to Jesus, trying to be our own God only leads to unrest. It only leads to unrest and death. We'll put that one down. I mean, that, that, that's the bottom line. You know, Romans 6, verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death. Well, what is...
whatsoever. <laughs> Should I just, yeah, okay. So what we see is that whatsoever is not from faith is sin. That's according to Romans chapter 14, verse 23, right? Wages of sin, I think that's where I was going. Okay, wages of sin is death. Well, the wages of unfaith, the wages of putting faith in self rather than in God, in, in other people rather than the Savior, all of that, that earns, that's only going to lead to death. Why? Because he who has the Son has life, and he who doesn't does not have life. It's not an arbitrary punishment. It's what sin earns. It gathers to itself. And so, if rest is found when we come to Jesus, then trying to be our own God only leads to unrest and death. Now, yes, this third angel's message, it has a very strong warning, but I want you to hear the promise, okay, what the message is not saying, <laughs> that those who worship God have rest, okay? That's the, that's the obvious implication, like the flip side of the coin, those who keep worshiping the beast, those who keep putting trust in self, they do not have rest. The promise, though, is that when we do worship him, and right, we, we talked about it. First angel told us, hey, worship, it's not just 10 minutes on a stage singing a few songs. Uh, worship is giving all to God. When we worship God in that sense of granting him entire worthship, saying that he is worth it all to me, that's where rest is. That's where rest is. Now, I want to I share another just kind of hidden gospel promise here that's not in your handout. But there's a phrase here that, ha that recently just kind of caught my attention. In verse 10, part of the warning portion of this, it says, He himself shall, what's the next word in your New King James? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He himself shall also drink. Now, this may be that, okay, in addition to worshiping the beast, he'll also drink the wine, or the wrath of God that's in the cup of in his indignation. But as I was thinking about this, I think this also can not just be tagged on to the verbal idea, but the subject of the action. Okay. I know I'm kind of getting into grammar nerdiness here, all right? But check this out. I think the implication there is that this cup has been drunk before. If anyone worships the beast in his image, he also will drink this. The implication is that someone else has... The implication is... Praise the Lord. Okay, thank you. The implication is that someone else has drunk this cup before. The cup of God's indignation. Who, pray tell, would that have been? Jesus. In Matthew chapter 26, he is wrestling he tells his disciples, hey, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Think about his verbiage there. His soul is dying. Not just his body is dying. He says his very existence is being crushed out. And we already learned that the soul, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, the soul dies in the lake of fire. The soul dies in hell. What Jesus is going through as he is trudging through the Garden of Gethsemane is he is going through a second death experience. We already talked about the second death is the death from which there is no resurrection. Jesus is going into the Garden of Gethsemane with the full weight of humanity's sin, not just one person's sin, but the entire human race's sin on his shoulders. And he says, my soul 
is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And as he's praying three times this prayer, he says, Lord, if it is possible, let this what? Let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? The cup of God's wrath against sin. And Jesus is smelling it right in his hand. He doesn't want it. Everything in his humanity repels it. But out of infinite love, he says, Not my will, but yours be done. He's praying, if it's possible to save humanity without this cup, God, let it be. But if not, I'll drink it. Three times he says this prayer, if it is possible, if it is possible. And God, the Father, gave no answer, meaning it is not possible. And who drank the cup? Jesus did. Jesus did. When the third angel says, he himself shall also drink, the hidden gospel invitation is, you don't have to drink this. I already have. <laughs> and this is the God who wants to save those who dwell on the earth, who worship the beast in his image, who continue to put trust in self. And he sends these angels' messages. And in verse 12, the climax, we've already read it, but let's read it again. Chapter 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here in your handout, you can write this one down. This is how God's end time followers will persevere. This is the, uh, verse 12 is really describing the ripened harvest, right? Complete obedience, go ahead and write that one in. Complete obedience that grows out of complete trust in Jesus. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, in fact one is the root, the other is the fruit. Complete obedience that grows out of complete trust in Jesus, comma, not ourselves. Friends, are you hearing the everlasting gospel tonight? Man, it's beautiful. This is what the world needs to hear. And Jesus knows that he's giving us this prophecy. Look to Jesus is the bottom line. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. When you think about it, right? First angel is saying, hey guys, you're dwelling on the earth. You're persist you, you, you worship the beast in his image. Well, look that way. Fear God, give him glory and worship him. Right? Look to Jesus. Trust in his promises. What he has promised, he is able to perform. Second angel comes along and it's almost as if, I don't know if you've ever had this happen where... You know, you're, you're trying to give your kids instruction or someone who's about to do something that they probably shouldn't do. And, you know, maybe <laughs> I remember uh, one of our, our boys, I won't name names. Okay, okay. <laughs> one of our kids was running out towards the street and I said, hey, come back. Okay, I gave the positive instruction. Come back, right? If they're not listening, my voice might raise a little bit. <laughs> and I might paint some consequences like, well, do you really? I'm, no, 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 don't do that. I'll get a little bit louder the next time if need be. What? You're going to become a pancake. Okay, so I'll lay it out real straight, right? <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. The three angels' messages are all saying the same thing, just with increased intensity. 
as time goes on. Since 1844, the appeal has been, hey guys, we can look towards heaven. The one who sits on the throne, he's moved into his final phase of, of salvation history. The hour of his judgment has come. Put your trust in him. This is the time. Second angel says, well, if you keep dabbling in these things, the reality is that that's Babylon and that's messed up. It's not going to get you anywhere. The third angel has to come along and say, well, if you haven't connected the dots just yet, this is really what it leads to. Do you follow yes or no? All three angels are essentially saying, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Yeah. So there, in your handout, third page, conclusion. These are the same messages spoken with increased intensity. Look to Jesus. Same messages spoken with increased intensity. Look to Jesus. And this is the gospel that was first proclaimed in the Garden of Eden. Hey, look to Jesus. There is a seed that's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head. Look to Jesus, Adam and Eve. Hey, I'm going to give you uh, tunics of skin. You're not dying today. Something else is going to die. Look to Jesus. Even in, in, in the story of Cain and Abel, you know, Cain refused. He looked to self, but Abel's sacrifice was looking to Jesus. All throughout the gospel has been proclaimed. This is the everlasting gospel. Keep looking to Jesus. This is the gospel that has gone out from the beginning and it will go out till the end. How many of you want to be part of that? Yeah, amen, amen. Last verse that we're going to go to today, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse... Whoa, thank you, sir. Did you say it again, 1284? Yeah? 1284. Awesome. I was wondering... Dwayne, did you look this up during dinner? Good for you, brother. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Redeeming the time. Awesome. Okay, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. When you're there, say, I found it. <laughs> Maybe you should say, thank you, Dwayne. I'm kidding. <laughs> Matthew 24, verse 14. The Bible says, this is Jesus. He's talking about the signs of the time, signs leading up to the end of the world. And he says in verse 14, and this, what? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Go ahead and write it down. This message, this gospel message that was started in the Garden of Eden and all the way to the end, this message is our mission. This message is our mission. God is looking for people who will give these messages to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. Now, there's a little phrase here uh, th that I don't want to gloss over. It says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. And what are the next three words right there? As a witness. As a witness. Some versions say as a testimony. A witness or a testimony is something that someone gives from having been there, right? Having done that, having seen it, heard it, felt it, smelt it, right? When we're able to give a message as a witness, it's because we've experienced the message for ourselves. Does that make sense to everyone? Yes or no? Yeah? Here's the point. 
There is no way to give the message if we do not live the message. There is no way to share it with others if we haven't first received it for ourselves. Friends, do you know the gospel? That trusting self, doing things from self, for self, by self, even if it's focused on other people, for, uh, based on other people's authority or expectations or requirements of you, friends, that will not save you. It's only in coming to Jesus that we have rest. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Friends, we can't give this message if we aren't living it ourselves. And go ahead and write this one in. As a witness, how can we expect to give? How can we expect to give these messages? if we have not received them ourselves. In order to give these messages, we must live these messages through a life of unreserved surrender. Go ahead and write that one in. A life of unreserved surrender. Complete obedience that grows out of complete trust in Jesus, not ourselves. Easier said than done. But by faith... God will make this. He, what does it say? 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, Faithful is he who calls us, who also will do it. Faithful is he who calls us, who also will do it. In other words, if he's calling us to give this message, it's because he wants to empower us to live it. <laughs> Amen. So let's write this one down too. Last points here. Through the three angels of Revelation 14, God communicates two things. I want us to hear this loud and clear. God loves you and wants you to receive this gospel. God loves you and wants you to receive this gospel. The last part there, God loves you, I'm sorry, God loves the world and wants you to share this gospel. God loves the world and wants you to share this gospel. So, friends, tonight, how many of you tonight want to say, okay, I hear the everlasting gospel. And I want to receive it. How many of you, by raising up your hands, say, yes, I choose to live to Jesus. Amen. Amen. And as you, you recognize, hey, wait, this gift is not just for me. That God himself wants to actually share this gospel message through me. Could it be that God is actually looking for a people? He's looking for you and I in this hour of earth's history, not just to live this for ourselves, but to give it to others. How many of you want to say, yeah? If that's God's mission, if that's God's message, I want to be part of sharing it. How many of you do not want to say yes? Count me in. Amen and amen. Friends, this is, is, is the message. <laughs> Answers in prophecy, it's pointing us to the one who can save. Several of us tonight, uh, you know, here have throughout the last couple of weeks made some decisions, maybe decisions that you in your heart have made maybe beforehand and have just kind of come to almost like a, a climax point, recognizing the Holy Spirit's prompting in your life. And I want to celebrate that with you tonight. I, I know several of us have talked about uh, your commitment to baptism or your decision to be baptized. We haven't yet set timelines, even decision to be rebaptized. And you know what? We've been part of this family together. And I just want to give you an opportunity to let your, your support network cheer you on in that. So if you have made a decision to be baptized or rebaptized, maybe we haven't even talked about this yet, and you just want to stand and say, yep, that's me too, count me in. Would you just stand to your feet tonight? Would you just stand to your feet? Yeah. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, 
Praise God. Yes. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Look, I want you to know something. I want you to know something, that your decision makes the hosts of, of darkness tremble. Okay? And the heavenly hosts are doing all cartwheels and high fives all over the place. Okay? Maybe there are some here that have said, you know what? Uh, this, this idea of a remnant movement that God is raising up at the end of time. I've already, you know, I've subscribed to that. I'm a part of that already. But you know what? I'm seeing that in a new way, and I want to refresh my commitment to that. Or maybe this is new to you altogether, and you're saying, I want to be part of what God is up to, this end-time movement. If that's you tonight, would you just stand to your feet and let heaven know? Yeah? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Amen. Amen. And I know tonight each and every one of you have response cards and stuff, and Again, if there are, if there are uh, questions that you have, go ahead and use that response card for that as well. But for those of you who are committed to coming to our More Answers in Prophecy, I want to make sure that you've, you've signed up through that as well. But friends, tonight, I think there's, there's a lot of reason to rejoice. We're standing not for ourselves. We're standing for you know, God saying, hey, there's a people. I'm moving along. Who's coming with me? Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you're the God who is on the move. And in these end times, we don't want to be, we don't want to be on the sidelines just kind of watching things happen. We want to be on the front lines working alongside with you. Like it says at the end of Revelation, the spirit and the bride say come. Father, we, we want to be partnering with you until the end, sharing this gospel message because we're living this gospel message. Thank you so much for revealing these messages to us. We pray that as we continue to, to move forward in further study, as we keep taking steps in our spiritual journey, would you please give us tokens along the way. Give us evidence of the fact that you are leading us. May we continue to, to stand firmly upon your word. I pray a special blessing for those who have made a decision to be baptized or rebaptized. And I ask God that you would guard and protect them. We know that when Jesus was baptized, his immediate experience after that was temptations in the wilderness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would surround each of our precious friends with the full armor of God. And that you would surround them also with a cloud of witnesses, that we would be part of their support network, those who cheer them on, those who pray for them, and those who journey with them. Thank you again, Father for the privilege that we have to know you. Tonight, we just say we are looking up. We look to Jesus. In his name we pray. Let everyone say amen, amen and amen.